Make your way in your Bible to the book of Jonah. book of Jonah, we're preaching through the book of Jonah, and uh, we're still coming through chapter 1. Chapter 1 has quite a bit of, of uh, great truth to be gleaned, and uh, so my prayer is that we can glean some things today that would encourage us, and we can see more about, the, uh, about this narrative, this account of Jonah. Uh, every time I study and dig into this book, I, I see things that I did not see before, and I'm thankful for that thankful that God's truth is uh, beyond exhausting it all. It is always, it is an endless well of truth and knowledge and, and uh, wonderful things for us. And so today we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse number 7 and we will come down through verse number 10. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 7 down through verse number 10. Notice the Bible says, And they said one to another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account is this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. We see Jonah, we know that Jonah, he's a prophet who is on the run. He's a prophet in sin, running from God, running from the Lord. And when we think about this reality... Is there any way to truly escape the guilt of sin? Is there any way or can a person ultimately evade their own guilt for the transgressions that they have done, whether they be little or large in our eyes? The answer is no. Yet when it comes to being guilty, what is the natural tendency of mankind? The natural tendency of mankind is to try at best to cover up their guilt, to hide their guilt, maybe run away from their guilt, blame their guilt. We don't like to be guilty. Our natural tendency is to do everything possible to avoid guilt being on us. Now, I've probably said this before, but anytime there is a scuffle between the kids in the other room and we weren't in there, we come to sort out what's going on, and the result of each of them is this. It was Jubilee's fault, or it was David's fault. David did this. Well, as a parent coming into the room, you're somewhat confused. Okay, well, whose fault really is it, right? Well, little deeper questions begin to unveil the truth. Getting to the nuts and bolts of what was happening within the scenario and in that room, and little by little, the truth comes to the surface, and we see who was really guilty of who had caused the scuffle, and who was trying to hide that guilt. And children are a great example for all of adults because we have the same nature they do, don't we? That's what we do. We tend to cover our guilt. Now, this is in one way, a way that we see Jonah trying to run from the Lord and his guilt trying to be hidden in a sense, but it's exposed here. Our text, it picks up in the middle of a very important narrative about this prophet of God as we know the story and how it comes about. Jonah, having received the word of the Lord that said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come upon me, come up to me. Jonah willfully rebelled against that command. With obstinate disobedience, he went down to Joppa, bought his one-way ticket to Tarshish, had made himself comfortable on the ship, leaving Israel in the past. But the Lord, we know, sent a mighty storm that threatens to break up this ship. The sailors are afraid for their lives. They are doing everything they can to save themselves and the ship. They cast their possessions and their profit overboard. That doesn't work. They pray to their gods. That doesn't work. So the captain goes down and seeks to try to wake up Jonah and says, What are you doing, sleeper? Get up. Call out to your God. Maybe your God, since ours aren't working, maybe your God will show some favor on us, and maybe our lives will be spared in the midst of this storm. You see, this brings us to the deeper 
aspect of the story of Jonah as the sailors begin to look for the real reason this has come upon them. And the real reason that is plainly given to them is only going to increase their fear, increase their terror. Notice what we learn from this passage of Scripture. Notice in our notes, I want you to see that there is a hope for clarity that is pursued by these sailors. A hope for clarity. And in this hope for clarity, they begin an investigation. They begin to do something that might give them some, some clarity about why this is all happening. And notice with me in letter A here in our notes this morning that the mariners, they first, they use a method of chance to find an answer. They use a method of chance to find an answer. Now, why must the mariners seek some, some way of finding out the answer for the storm? Well, here's why they're seeking whatever way they can. Because the one who does know the answer is not speaking about it. His name is Jonah. The one who can pray to the one true God, the only God who even hears a prayer, he's refusing to do so. Now, this probed my thinking for a moment. In verse 6 we read that, the captain came and told him, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will show us some kind of favor. Give us a thought that we not perish. We notice that Jonah doesn't even respond to him. But more importantly than that, Jonah does not pray. Why does Jonah not pray? Because Jonah at this point in his life, he is not in fellowship with God and he knows it. Not in fellowship with Him. He's not on good speaking terms with the Most High, to put it more plainly. He knows that He is in rebellion. He knows that He's running from the Lord. So, so, so bear in mind a couple things regarding this. Because when one of, when, when one of God's, people, God's people, God's children, are knowingly walking in disobedience to the Lord, you understand that that is a great hindrance to prayer. A great hindrance to prayer. For two reasons. One, understand this. If you're in willful, active disobedience to God, you know it. God will not hear or honor a prayer from Jonah in this rebellious state. The only prayer he's going to honor is a prayer of repentance, of turning around. Jonah, could he not have recognized, all of this is my fault. Lord, I see that I should have gone to Nineveh, prayed, repented, and turned around. Perhaps. But Jonah doesn't do that. You understand, what is prayer in its very essence? It is an appeal to the Lord for help. It is asking for His hand to work on behalf of your request. Now think of this situation regarding Jonah. Could Jonah be expected to ask God for something when Jonah has refused to do what God has commanded him to do? Could Jonah pray for God to stop the storm when the very reason for the storm is his disobedience. Jonah has no right to even pray in this moment for such a thing. Hugh Martin rightly comments in this passage, he says, The man who in known disobedience to any command from God approaches to pray defies the divine omniscience as if God did not know his sin. Who are we to approach God beseeching something when we willfully and knowingfully are rebelling against the one we're seeking. See, we must understand this as God's people. That willful sin hinders our prayers. Listen to what David said. David said in Psalm chapter 66 and verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have what? Listen cherished iniquity in their heart. You understand that, that cherishing means you're holding on to it. You're refusing to let go of it. You're, you're not repenting of it. You're, you're clinging to it. Jonah has a cherished iniquity in his heart in this text. It's the iniquity of disobedience. It's the iniquity of pride. It's the iniquity of, 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 of running from God. He is running from Him, and, and his own conscience uh, ref, will not allow him to pray. Which brings me to the second aspect of this is that though those in rebellion as Jonah refuse to truly pray. 
Because when you're running from God, you're most certainly not seeking Him, are you? This is the very nature of rebellion itself. That we in rebellion turn from the Lord rather than to the Lord. You see, the very attempt to pray in such a state would be an insult to God. Oh Lord, please help me out of this storm. When the reason for the storm is because I'm running from you. That would be an insulting request. Take note of this for yourself, Christian, that in our own rebellion, our prayers will be hindered and our rebellion will keep us from praying. Which brings me to what we see why the the soldiers, why the sailors are seeking some kind of an answer another way. You'll notice they're left to their own methods. In verse number 7, what do we read? The Bible says, they said one to another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. As we come through this text, I want to just bring to your attention a few observations that can be gleaned from this passage, because I think they're very applicable and good for us. Number one, I want you to see this. These sailors, they have concluded that the reason for this storm and their nearing death is because someone on the boat has angered a deity, a god. They don't know the true god. They have a pantheon of gods that they acknowledge. But they have this idea, they've concluded... Somebody on this ship is guilty of something. Somebody on this ship has sinned. He, they say that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon on us. So, so someone has a God that has been offended. They have all called on their gods to no avail. There is a guilty party among them. Now here's something that's interesting to note they at least recognize that this disaster has to do with someone's sin, someone's offense against another. You know, we live in a day when disasters and catastrophes are only viewed through a very humanistic and evolutionary lens. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, they're all just random acts of Mother Nature. Christian, understand this, because I hear even Christians talk this way. There is no such thing as Mother Nature. Say amen. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. There is only a sovereign God who rules and governs all things, including the disasters that we see in this world. Now understand this. Sometimes those events come as a result of sin and gross idolatry and wickedness, but not all the time. Sometimes they are simply God's providence for His purposes, often to awaken man's mind to their own mortality and the reality of death, their own weakness. Man likes to think he's strong and he can build great buildings until a hurricane knocks him down. Then we're not so mighty anymore, are we? But in this case of the storm, it comes because of someone's sin. So the sailors are right in the sense that that there is evil on the boat and it's coming from someone. They even recognize this with pagan understanding. And since they have done everything in their power and the sea rages on without restraint, this must be a great sin. This must be something very serious to cause such indignation. Something else I want you to notice about these sailors Their decision to come together and cast lots to figure out who is guilty implies that they themselves think themselves not guilty of anything worthy of this. None of them think that they individually are worthy of such judgment on the sea. That's why they're participating in the casting of lots. But let me ask you this. Did not each man on that ship have enough sin to warrant the wrath of God? Absolutely they did. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, we often view great storms and catastrophes as if bad things happening to mankind is unwarranted. That couldn't be further from the truth either. You understand that it is God's mercy alone right now that restrains His wrath from being poured out upon all of humanity. 
If God was to eradicate all of humanity today, he would be perfectly holy and just and loving and be right in what he does. If God wasn't merciful, we'd have no hope. You see, these sailors, the implication, their implication of being guiltless as if, well, this storm ain't my fault, it's got to be somebody else's fault, it really perfectly depicts the natural man's attitude towards his own sin. People are willing to admit that they have not always done right and they've done bad every now and then, but surely they're not worthy of God's wrath. Surely we can't be worthy of that. Little do most people know, they are worthy of wrath and that is all they're worthy of. And the same thing applies for every Christian in this room. Christian, you're worthy of wrath and that's all you're worthy of. As Jacob once said long ago, he said, Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. The only reason you don't experience wrath, Christian, is because of grace. Grace, the unmerited and unearned favor of God. It is because of grace and mercy. But this points to us with these pagans how ignorant natural man is of God's holiness and his justice. We are worthy of this. Even Jonah in this sense. Jonah right now is worthy of death. Yet he doesn't receive it. Why doesn't he receive it? Because of God's restraining hand of mercy. Christian, you think about a time in your life when you lived in rebellion. You were running from God. The only reason you were able to come back to God is because of mercy. You because of mercy. You see, what prevented ruin from wholly swallowing up Jonah was nothing but mercy. The mercy of God who pitied his servant and watched for his safety even while he was asleep in this treacherous storm. Had not the Lord exercised such care over Jonah, he too would have perished. But now we see the third aspect, the third observation from this text, and I want you to see this with the sailors, is the method of casting lots. They begin to cast lots as a method of trying to find out whose fault this is. And they use this method of casting lots in a pagan way of really letting chance determine who is guilty. Now, what really is casting lots? What does this mean? Well, what was it? I'll give you a little notes here. Ancient peoples used lot casting as a form of cleromancy. It was a type of divination in which the random outcome was to be was believed to reflect divine will. Ancients commonly used small stones labeled to reflect the possible outcome of the decision. Another commentator states regarding casting lots, he says, the most common word used for lot indicates that these were either stones or pebbles that were painted or colored. When the stones were thrown, if two dark sides landed up, the usual interpretation was no. If two light sides landed up, that meant yes. And if a dark and light, dark, dark and light side landed up, that meant throw again. So using that system, the sailors are trying to figure out with each individual, with the color revealed, who's the guilty person. Imagine all of them, one by one. All right, so-and-so step up. Let's roll, the, roll these, I'm going to call them dice, even though they were stones. Dice is more, more modern to our, our understanding. No, okay, next guy. No, okay, next guy. No, okay, next guy. This method is meant to show impartiality in some way. A lot like flipping a coin at the beginning of a football game, right? You flip the coin to see who gets the ball first. It's impartial. Unless it's a two-sided coin that has the, same, has the same side. I don't know if that happens, but hopefully not. But here's the reality. This situation is far bigger than a football game. This was a determination of seeing who is putting everybody's life at stake. Imagine trying to make a major decision right now by simply rolling dice. Or even shaking the magic eight ball. Should I buy this new car? The eight ball says, go for it. (laughs) Imagine making major decisions that way. That's essentially what's happening with the pagan sailors. They're doing it with no other option for them. But their way of doing it is is very superstitious and a reliance on 
the God's uh, little g that don't exist. But even in this instance, here's what's fascinating about how the Lord works. Even through these pagans, God's still in control and going to work. And notice with me letter B. We see the Lord's providence. The Lord provides an answer by his providence. I told you that one of the themes undergirding in Jonah is the sovereignty of God. Over everything. Including the roll of the dice. Now, we see the casting of lots done by both pagans and the people of God in the Scriptures. When it comes to pagans, they use it as a means of divination to discover the will of the gods. But for the people of God, they sometimes would cast lots on specific matters to discern the will of the true God. We have several instances of this. Let me share a couple with you. Aaron, the high priest, would cast lots on the Day of Atonement to determine which of the two goats would be sacrificed and which one would be sent off as a scapegoat. They'd cast lots, and whichever one landed on is getting the knife. The other one's getting exiled. King Saul, the first king of Israel, was essentially chosen by lot with Samuel's leading. 1 Samuel 10, 19-21. When there was sin in the camp of Israel... Joshua found out by Lot who the guilty party was. And it Lot trickled all the way down as they narrowed the scope all the way down to Achan. Joshua says to Achan, give glory to God. Confess this matter. What a parallel that is for Jonah. For Jonah. When the early church sought to replace Judas Iscariot's apostle position, they did so by prayer and by Lot. Acts 1.26 they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, I will note this, that this does not mean that lots, casting lots, should be used for major decisions today. There are no examples of lots being cast after the day of Pentecost. The church doesn't use that. In the case of the early church, the appointment of the twelfth apostle was a very unique situation, a choice made by Jesus himself early in his ministry. And so through prayer and by casting of lots that fell on Matthias. Decisions made in the church today are done through people as they pray and seek the Spirit's guidance. Now why did God's people ever use such a method of casting lots? Here's why. Because they believed, because of what they believed about the sovereignty of God. Look at Proverbs chapter number 16 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 16 and look with me at verse 33. Notice this proverb that Solomon communicates. Proverbs 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from where? The Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. Now, here's what you really got to boil down to. How, how sovereign do you believe God really is? Is he sovereign over some things or all things? What's the extent of his sovereignty, right? Do we believe that God is sovereign even over something as small as colored stones or dice landing a certain way at a particular time? I do. Scripture says so. He's sovereign over everything. Anytime we're playing a board game or playing cards with family and I'm winning, Bethany usually does a little smack talking to me like, why do you always get the best role? Why do you always get the best cards? And my answer is always, don't be complaining about providence now in this game. It's not as easy to say that when you're on the opposite side losing, if you know what I mean. You understand that God's sovereignty and providence, they are exhaustive over everything. Matthew 10 and verse 29, Jesus said this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from who? Your Father in heaven. So how insignificant is a bird falling to the ground? And yet, not one does apart from the heavenly Father. 
You see, the Jews trusted in the sovereignty of God, even over the lots cast over certain decisions. Not every decision. This was a unique thing they did. But certain ones. And so in Israel, every time they did it, it was always before the Lord to receive his direction on a matter that they did not have clarity about. Now here's here's what we find with Jonah. In the case of Jonah, even though these pagans are using lots in a, a very superstitious way, God's going to use it in a very sovereign way. And here's what I love about this. All, it's all pointing the finger at Jonah. In verse 7, they cast the lots, and the lot fell where? Jonah. The sleeper. The guy who's hiding down in the midst of the ship. What's the chances that it falls on him? Most people in the world would look at this and say, oh, look at that coincidence. I say, look at that providence. Providence. You see, it's here under providence that Jonah's sin and guilt, they are inescapable. He thought he could run from it. He thought he could hide from it. But every step of the way, God has bore witness against Jonah over and over again. And thus we see the great principle of what Moses warned Israel about. In Numbers chapter number 32 and verse 23, he says this in regarding to them obeying the Lord. If you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. So Christian, you know what that teaches us? That teaches us that we cannot just stick our head in the sand in our rebellion and think that all is going to be okay. All sin against the Lord is on us. And we're accountable to Him for it. It cannot be escaped. So with the guilty person now unveiled, what would be next? Notice with me number two in our notes here this morning. We see an honest confession is declared. An honest confession is declared. And this is declared because of the questions that they ask him. If Jonah was never asked these questions, he probably would have just remained silent anyway. But notice with me that Jonah firstly is probed with cutting questions. These are, these are piercing questions. At least they ought to be. In verse 8 we read, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Now, can you just imagine this scene for a moment? They bring Jonah up on deck. The ship is tossing and turning. The waves are beating. The wind is howling. And one of the sailors is trying to cry out to Jonah amidst all the chaos. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? What land is yours? Now, what is the intention of these questions from the pagan mariners? Why are they asking him this? Their intention is to figure out what kind of a God Jonah has angered. They've already determined it's Jonah's fault. But what what kind of God does Jonah serve? What kind of God has he angered to bring this upon us? They question him in a very specific nature. Like a lawyer probing a guilty criminal in the court of law. They ask, what is your occupation? That refers to Jonah's lifestyle. What what do you do, Jonah? What do you do for a living? Are you a carpenter? Are you a mason? Are you a fisherman? What do you do? They then ask, where do you come from? That's a question aimed really at his religious heritage. And convictions. They ask, and what is your country? That they're probing for his origins and his and the land in which he comes from. What people are you? They want to know his lineage and family heritage. Where who is Jonah? Who is Jonah? All of these questions are an attempt to nail down some kind of information about the God Jonah knows and what Jonah must have done to anger him. What kind of deity are they dealing with here? Now, you understand that these men, these sailors, they've got a pantheon of gods, right? 
Earlier, last message, what did they do? They're praying to the gods, plural. These pagans had all kinds of gods. They had a god of the sun, god of the moon, god of the sky, god of the sea, god of the ocean, god of everything. God of certain animals. God of certain sinful practices. But each of those gods they called on were non-existent and unable to save them. And here's the sad reality is that mankind still creates for himself false gods of various forms. And he looks to them for hope. Jeremiah the prophet rightly wrote this. Can man make for himself gods such are not gods? Man does, but they're not gods. Man is good at creating gods. It was Calvin who rightly said that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We pump out idols like a factory. That's, that's our nature. We, we, our nature is to make gods that are not true. But here's the reality here. Despite their ignorance of the one true God, these questions show us some insight into the minds of the sailors. Now I share, share these summarized insights from a man named John Randall Easter in his commentary, Jonah. I thought he had some great points here about the sailors. He points out first that they recognize that Jonah's identity has a bearing on his life and theirs at this moment. Whoever Jonah is, it's not just about Jonah anymore, it's about us. Secondly, they know that the God of this storm must deal in a specific way with His people. Because this is all about Jonah. This is a specific storm. Thirdly, they see that Jonah's God is different than all their gods. How so? They've cried to all their gods and nothing's happened. Jonah's God must be different than theirs. Fourthly, they believe that with some clarity to these questions, they may be able to come up with some kind of a solution. There's much to glean from these sailors. But consider Jonah with these questions. What do questions do to someone who is guilty? That's usually what we do to figure out truth, dealing with our children. We ask questions. And guess what questions do? Questions probe within the heart. And guess what? Usually the one who is guilty, you can see it on their countenance. Their countenance begins to shift, begins to change. You see, questions stir conviction. But I want you to consider how piercing these questions are towards Jonah, being reminded again from these pagans about his calling as a prophet. What's your occupation? Jonah in his mind saying, I'm a prophet. He doesn't confess that. I'm a prophet of the one true God. Where are you from? The land of Israel given to us by God. Whose people are you? The Israelites, chosen and set apart by God. What convicting questions these are. What sharp-pointed questions these are coming from lost pagan sailors. They are yet another revelation of God's omniscience and omnipresence that no man can escape or hide their sinfulness from the Lord. As the author of Hebrews rightly said in Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We must never think that we can hide. You can't do it. It's a literal impossibility. But notice Jonah's answers here. Jonah provides the clear answers to these sailors. How's he going to answer it? Look, look at this. Now, I want you to note that Jonah, this whole time, he has not spoken a word up until verse 9. He's not said a thing. Even when he was called on by the captain, he's not spoken a word. But now in verse 9, we read the answers. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What do Jonah's answers reveal here? Well, the first thing I'm going to point out to you that Jonah does not answer. What, what question does he not answer? He doesn't answer the first one. What is your occupation, Jonah? He doesn't give them that answer. Now, in Jonah's mind, he's either ashamed to call himself a prophet now after all this disaster is pinned upon him for disobedience, 
or he's still clinging to the idea that he's resigned his office of prophet even though God didn't accept that resignation. He doesn't answer the question. But he does answer the other questions. His first answer here distinguishes him as one of God's chosen people from the line of Abraham. What does he say? I am a Hebrew. Where do the Hebrews come from? From the line of Abraham. I am a Hebrew. Jonah is setting apart his God from all the other pagan Gentile gods. Because even in that region, it was known that Israel's God was different than the pagan gods around them. You understand? You see, Jonah's God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of all Israel, who chose his people and set them apart from all others. God called Abraham to himself, making covenant with him, and later reminded all Israel of this truth through Moses. I'll read to you Deuteronomy chapter number 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 through 8. You'll see this great truth before us. You'll notice in verse 6 through verse 8. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What do you notice about that text? And just think about it in relation to Jonah. Jonah is part of this people that God set his love upon, called them out of, out of nothing, out of paganism. He is part of them. But the next part of Jonah's answer here reveals that his God is the God worthy of worship and reverence even though Jonah has fled from him. What does Jonah say here? He says, I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. What Lord? Jonah uses the covenant name for God and Lord, which is Yahweh. The Lord who is Yahweh. You see, this God, this God is the true God. The God of Israel who, who puts all other gods of the Gentiles to shame. You think about this God, the Lord. He is the one who set His people free from Egypt by ten supernatural plagues. Putting an open shame upon the gods of Egypt. It is this God who split the Red Sea, causing His people to walk across on dry ground. It is this God who sustained them in the wilderness, brought victory to them in Canaan, settled them in the Promised Land. It is this God, this God, who has done miraculous things on behalf of His people. This God, Yahweh, the only God, is to be feared and demands to be feared, not just by the Hebrews, but by the entirety of the world. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. You notice the last part of Jonah's answer here puts the final piece to the puzzle about everything with this disaster on the sea. Jonah says of his God, he says that his God is the God of heaven. And I think this last description is quite important. His God's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Imagine that coming into the ears of these sailors. His God's the one who made the sea. You see, these sailors are on the brink of death at sea because Jonas' God, the creator and controller of the sea, is chastising him. Oh, how these sailors must have wished to be on dry land at this moment. Wish I hadn't got on this boat with this Jonah. 
Let me give you a couple lessons from Jonah's confession that I want you to see. Jonah's confession reveals some things about the Christian life. And here's one of the first things I want to point out to you about the Christian, even in rebellion. We learn that God's elect, His true people, cannot and will not fall away so far as to completely deny God in Christ. They won't do it. You see, true Christians can certainly rebel, just as we see here with Jonah. But no true Christian who has been born again can or will apostatize from the faith. Even Jonah in his rebellion, guess what? The Lord is still his God. Didn't change that. Paul said to the Philippians this in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You understand that salvation is a work of God and it cannot be undone if you have truly gotten it. When a person does come to deny the Lord Jesus after earlier professing to be a Christian, they apostatize. What does that teach us? It teaches us that they never truly were born again to begin with. Now, I see that a lot in today's, especially American culture, where there's so much skepticism. So-and-so says, oh, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm an atheist. You never were a real Christian to begin with. There is no such thing as being a Christian and then not being a Christian. You may have professed Christianity, but you didn't possess Christianity. There's a difference, friend. John the Apostle said this in 1 John 2, 19, of false teachers who were among the Christians but left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are not of us. Reality is with Jonah is that God's people are always going to be God's people. He has chosen them, He has called them, He has converted them, He has consecrated them, and he will ultimately bring them to their final conclusion in Christ in the end. Christian, take comfort in that truth. But here's something else we learn <laughs> through Jonah here, through his confession. Though Jonah is in a deeply rebellious state, this does not hinder God from bringing himself glory. It doesn't. You see, God in his sovereignty can take even what evil we may do and bring Himself glory through it. You ought to believe that. Why? Think about this. See how we see it in Jonah. Had Jonah directly obeyed these sailors, but obeyed the command of God, these sailors would have never experienced the power of the one true God or heard of Him from Jonah. Jonah's rebellion led to him still getting glory, God still getting glory in the sea. God says through the psalmist, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He exalts himself in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Take Joseph, for example. His brothers meant evil, but God meant it for good. God got glory even through that. Now, bear this note too. That God's sovereignty to glorify Himself, even in our rebellion, does not give us license to rebel, thinking, oh, God's just going to glorify Himself anyway. Shame on you if you think that way. We are called to obey the Lord. But what we learn is that the Lord is not limited to bring Himself glory despite humans in their obstinate rebellion. You see, Jonah gives an honest answer about his God here in his rebellious state. And yet, this is another lesson. That every Christian, even in their sinful state of rebellion, should give the correct answer to anyone who questions their identity. Because they are still truly a Christian if they've been born again. And here's the last application I want to give you regarding this. <clears throat> his confession. You notice that Jonah's confession does not match his conduct, does it? His confession does not match his conduct. Here we see the great need for all of us as God's people, especially in our world we live in. Our confession 
of the one true God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, must be reflected in our life of obedience. To live as Jonah with that kind of a conduct contradicts the confession that we proclaim. Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Manner of life. Testifying. Testifying to the gospel that has changed us and worked in us. You see, Jonah, in his answers to these questions, he shows us many things. But I think one thing we see with him is that he, in one sense, owns up to his guilt. He's not trying to hide it anymore. Jonah could have lied here, couldn't he? Have? He could have lied. He could have made up some story. But he does tell the truth. He tells what the truth is regarding who he is and what he's done. He even told them that he is running from the Lord. But the truth is, friend, is that when we attempt to cover up sin... We only increase our guilt in judgment. Christian, don't do that. Don't run from God and then try to cover it up. It doesn't work. It does not work. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I ask all of us today, what about us? What if these questions were asked of you? How would you answer them? We need to learn from Jonah and truly confess Christ and obey him. Notice with me number three as we come to the last verse here. We see number three that a horrible confusion is realized by the sailors. A horrible confusion. The sailors here, they're terrified at Jonah's rebellion. In verse 9, he makes clear that he is from the one true God, the one who made the land, the one who made the sea. Now, the, the sailors are already afraid that someone has upset a deity, but they now know who that deity is, the one who created the sea that's threatening them. In verse 10, what do we read? Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. That statement right there sticks out. What is this that you have done? What have you done? When you hear that statement, those are bold words that recognize something tragic has happened because of someone else's actions. Just a couple days ago, Spurgeon was in the kitchen. And Bethany was in a different room. Bethany heard a loud crash of glass hit the kitchen floor. Spurgeon had reached up and pulled the coffee carafe off of the coffee pot, smacked down onto the kitchen and busted it. Bethany marches in there, and Spurgeon knows he's done wrong. He knows. We've been telling him, don't touch this, don't touch this, don't touch this, trying to teach him not to touch things. Bethany walks in there and says, what did you do? Spurgeon is hugging the wall, <laughs> hugging the wall in sheer terror <laughs> because he knew that he had done something terrible, breaking the coffee pot, and if you understand if you, how important coffee is. That is a terrible thing to break. But he's just backed up against the wall, eyes wide looking at Bethany, knowing he's done something drastic in the kitchen. He knew he had done wrong, and he was fearful about it. Now Jonah, on the other hand, he knows he's done wrong, but he doesn't show a whole lot of fear or remorse here, does he? despite the gravity of the danger of his action. But this, this is the question and the statement to him. How could Jonah flee from this God, this God, and think all would be well? Here's the real question for rebellion for any of us. What are we thinking when we decide to go down that road? The answer is we're not really thinking. 
We're being impulsive and foolish, proud, blinded by our flesh. What was Jonah thinking? That's the real question. Has Jonah lost his mind? Did he really think he'd escape the presence of God, even if God is not known in another region? The prophet Jeremiah said this. Well, God says through him in Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? They knew Jonah was fleeing because he told them that. And in their mind, they're thinking, Jonah, what's wrong with you? Pagans are thinking this way. The God you described to us, how could you run from a God as this? So the sailors have every reason to be even more afraid concerning what they now know. They show a deeper fear of God in this instance than Jonah, who has known God for a long time. Jonah knew better and should have had a proper fear for God in this scenario. And here's the reality, Christian. You and I ought to always be on guard about our fear of God, our honor and our reverence of Him, to love Him and to obey Him with our whole hearts. Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when it comes to rebellious Christians who go off and live their way and they want nothing to do with the Lord or church, but yet they still claim to be a Christian. Maybe they'll come back someday, but in my mind I'm thinking, have you lost your mind? What are you thinking? This is not going to end well for you. It never does. Have we forgotten who God is? Have we forgotten who we are? Have we forgotten the redemptive work of Christ for us? These are things we need to think about when it comes to behaving like Jonah does in this text. So the revelation that Jonah is the problem in this text shows that God's providence, He does not let His people ultimately get away with their rebellion. And we who know the Lord should fear Him and obey Him as we know we should. We will be tempted to turn away and may even find ourselves in a rebellious state, Christian. But when that is the case, do not be as hard-hearted as Jonah was. Humble yourself. Repent. Confess your sin. Turn back to the Lord, for there is mercy and forgiveness in His gracious hands. And if you don't know the Lord truly today, then you're in the same category as these pagans. You know about a God or gods, but you don't know the true God. The true God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's the only Lord. He's the only Savior. He's the only King. He's the only one who has accomplished redemption with His blood and body on the cross and risen from the grave to give eternal life to as many as believe on Him. Repent and believe and turn to the one true God, Jesus Christ. Let us stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song.